Welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafter, and today I'll be chatting with Elizabeth Hemke, CIO of One Inc. One Inc. provides insurers with the capability to give their customers what they expect choice, control, convenience, and continuity. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Hi, Stacey. I'm doing great. Great to be here. Happy to have you. How's your day been so far? I know you in the morning, I'm in the afternoon, but just, yeah, like, just... yeah so far, so good. Um, you know, every, every day starts out with a bang. I've got um, team members all over the world. So sometimes my, my day starts pretty early in order to catch them in the office. What time do you usually start? What, is that, what does that look like? Uh, some days, you know, around 6 a.m., depending on um, which which team I'm talking to. Um, and some days it goes a little later in the evening because I either catch them on the front end or the back end of their day. But yeah, uh, it's not every day. Um, but it's when we need to. And, you know, we're willing to do it because we love working with a diverse, uh, a diverse set of resources. I love that. Are you more of a morning person or a night owl? Was that, was that like for you? Do you prefer working in the night, staying up late or bright and early? Oh, I'm definitely not a night owl anymore. I, <laughs> I probably would have said that uh, early in my career, but yeah. now I find uh, I am a lot fresher and I make a lot better decisions after a good night's sleep uh, first thing in the morning after my coffee. I relate to that. <laughs> I relate to that. Okay, Elizabeth, let's just jump right in. I'm eager to learn more about your career, but essentially what led you to join One Inc. and become the CIO? Uh, that is a great question, and I think this is probably um, a piece of advice that I would share with anyone. It is so important to build a really strong network of relationships and advocates, both inside your company and outside. Mm. So I would attribute that to the reason why I had I was given the opportunity to compete for um, the CIO role at One Inc. I worked for Ian Dry- with Ian Drysdale, who is our current CEO, for many years at our previous company. And when he left to take another opportunity uh, in between uh, or right before the One Inc. Uh, CEO role, he asked me to go to lunch. And uh, I happened to mention to him, I said, well, if you ever find yourself needing a CIO, let me know. And he laughed and he looked at me and he goes, seriously? And I said, of course, I would love to. To, to be a CIO and work for you. Um, and I think all of that was made possible because of the investment that we made in getting to know each other. Uh, I was his technology partner uh, when he was with, with a, like I said, the pre- a previous company. And, um, and we, you know, we built a strong relationship. And I think that's super important. And I think it's also super important to build those strong networking relationships outside of your company, not only because it gives you access to so much information and help and experiences and perspectives, but also you never know who, who might have the next opportunity. I'm in business development in my current position. So I'm client facing, I'm meeting a lot of new people every single day. So that's easy for me to network. How about somebody that's more on the tech side? What advice would you have for them? In your community, I guarantee you, there are all sorts of probably nonprofit type organizations or networking organizations. In Atlanta, there are probably four or five uh, kind of associations that are grounded in uh, networking, uh, meeting vendors, getting product demonstrations. And then all of them also usually have a philanthropic 
uh, aspect. So they, the work that they do benefits a nonprofit. For example, mm -hmm. uh, there's one that I work with where they provide, they connect companies with nonprofits so that the company can help them advance their nonprofit's mission through the use of technology. There might be another one that works a lot with school-age children and helping to provide them with laptops and other technology. So I would say look for look for organizations that are built around um, technology professionals, uh, CIO roundtable groups, uh, women in technology. Uh, it tends to be a big one in a lot of cities and get involved in those. And that's a fantastic way to actually learn a lot about technology and your industry and the products that vendors um, may that may be very useful to you. Uh, and also to meet those those community contacts to build that network. I love that. I love that piece of advice. You were hyper-focused on becoming a CIO over the five years leading up to you joining One Inc. What did that prep look like and how did you position yourself to achieve this? Well, I, I think in my, in my previous role, I had a really unique opportunity to be kind of the bookends for a my my peer group of developer leaders, so the leaders of the actual um, development teams. So I had all of the other dimensions of software development from business requirements, product owner, QA, automation. Um, I dipped my toe into innovation and started a technology innovation lab uh, with one of my coworkers, Jose Rivera, who did a fabulous job in getting that going with me. And um, so I got an opportunity to really get into a lot of different areas. I also partnered uh, very heavily with our infrastructure leadership team and really helped them to provide better services internally to, to internal uh, users. And I, I learned a lot from that. And I, I think it's important that if you're trying to get to that next level is figure out what you don't know about. and try to get involved either directly or as an influencer or just as a good internal partner. And I think you can learn a lot that way. And you also, again, then expand your network and you've got people that you can talk to when you have questions about infrastructure or an area that may not be part of your core. And I, I really think that there was a very uh, specific moment when I realized that I was ready uh, and could do the the role of the CIO. And I think every day I wonder, I question myself, can I really do this? And then I remind myself that I can. Uh, that's just sort of good, positive self-talk. But that that critical moment was that I was nominated for a leadership award from one of these uh, networking organizations in my community. And I had to sit down and answer a set of questions. And this is something that is sort of inherent with women that we have a hard time bragging about ourselves. <laughs> yes. And um, it's it's not something that our our other gender, the other gender suffers, but but we have a hard time really kind of bragging about what we do. We always tend to put our team first or others first. And when I answered these questions for this leadership award, it really forced me to sort of take stock of everything that I had learned, accomplished, and put it into words. And when I, it was sort of a cathartic event. And so when I finished that, that sort of write up for that award, I looked back at it and I said, wow, I really have accomplished a tremendous amount. 
I really am ready for that next level. And that was sort of that pivotal moment where I, I started to get a lot more, I became a lot more open to taking those phone calls for people who were looking for CIOs. Yeah. And I think interviewing for a new role, particularly a more senior role, is a great opportunity to practice and to get comfortable sharing you know, what you've accomplished and what you're really good at and what, what you bring to the table for a new organization. What interested you in the role of CIO? Did you see somebody that you aspired to be like? What about it intrigued you? I think that um, as you as you have different roles in your career or move you know up in the technology ranks, you and I was given this advice by a previous boss of mine uh, who I learned a tremendous amount from. He said, "You, whenever you start to work for someone new, the learning curve, the things that you can learn from that person, it, it's exponential. You, yeah. You're going to learn a lot, and then you're going to get to a point to where that learning curve kind of plateaus." And you'll always learn a little bit more from that person, but it'll it'll level off. And then it's mm. time to go and work for or with other people so that you can continue that learning journey. And what I found was I got to the point to where that learning curve was starting to get a lot shorter, that there were always things I could learn, but not as much. And so you get to a point to where you start to say, hmm. I think I could do that better. I think I have better ideas for how we should solve that problem. Or I might organize the group or the team, or I might hire someone different for this role. And you start to kind of look at what your current leader is doing. And you, you start to become comfortable with the fact that you might be able to do it a little differently, maybe a little better. And I think that's that's when you really start to get good internal momentum about reaching for that next role, which is which is kind of what I did is I yeah. got to the point where I really felt like I was ready. Um, I had great ideas and I wanted to be in a position to be able to implement those. I remember you mentioning that once you became CIO, you realized how people centric it was. Was there any other surprises once you achieved that? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I. I I would have thought when I went into the role, I would have thought that the t- having to make technology decisions was going to be the most challenging thing. Yeah. It turned out that wasn't. Um, that surprised me uh, because one of the aspects is you're really not alone at the top. Yeah. I am a part of an absolutely amazing leadership team. My peer group helps me every day. I believe I help them. And I have a lot of um, trusted advisors built into that ELT uh, group, that executive leadership team. So my head of product is a great sounding board for me. Our head of sales is a great sounding board. My CEO helps me make good decisions. And it's it, and so making sure that you're leveraging the talent of the team that you're on uh, makes that burden of making decisions a little bit easier. And the other thing is, is the team that I lead, they are brilliant. Mm. Uh, They are really excellent engineers. They do a tremendous amount of analysis and research. So when they put forward a recommendation to me, I know that they've done their due diligence and all the research that they needed to do to come up with a great decision. And then sometimes I I add a little bit of uh, uh, some extra pieces of feedback, and sometimes we might pivot and go in a different direction. But I know that they've done the work and I've done the work and that the decisions that we're putting forward are, are going to be really good for the company. 
but I'm also not afraid to change my mind, which I think is something that all leaders need to be comfortable with is you make decisions based on the information you have. And when new information presents itself, you have to be ready to pivot uh, and make adjustments um, to that plan. So, I mean, those are just, you know, some of the some of the things that I've learned. But the people aspect of being a CIO has really been challenging. Um, We have a lot of different cultures in our organization, Mm -hmm. which I love. Sometimes those cultures don't blend together as beautifully as you'd like. And so we have to really take time to uh, investigate and learn how we communicate, how we give feedback. Uh, the cultural differences that may shape how we operate uh, as a part of a team. And we've been making a really big investment in that as well. It's really important that in every organization, but in it and every team within an organization that you, you have a good relationship, a good working relationship with your yeah. team members. And sometimes that's, that's challenging if you don't really understand the culture that someone else comes from. Sure. Uh, so that's been something that to try to drive the happiness factor of our engineering team even higher has been has been a really big um, area of focus for us in the last several months. So you have two big cultural groups at One Inc. How have you managed to integrate the two, and what challenges have you faced along the way? Well, I, I was kind of referencing that a second ago. There's a book that was. Um, recommended to to the whole organization by one of our team members in our Mexico office. It's called the Culture Map. And it is it breaks culture down into, you know, a dozen or so dimensions. And then it plots the where each culture is on sort of a horizontal axis from, you know, one extreme to the other. And so it becomes very, very clear when you have either really big gaps between where these different cultures lie on that line or ironically, when they're really close together. So one of the aspects of, of uh, one of the areas that we, we struggle with, so we have to really um, teach our teams some new techniques to deal with it is high context versus low context communication. And what that means is, if you're part of a high context culture, that means that you, when you communicate, you are expecting the other person to understand where you came from, how you communicate. Uh, The Japanese culture, for example, talks about reading the air, which is they say things, but there's a whole bunch of other context that is, that is inferred. Yes by the listener. And so we have that in, in some of our cultures where, where what they say requires that you have that context. And of course, if you're talking to someone from another part of the the world, they don't have that. And so what we tend to do is we say, we teach people to speak like Americans do, which is low context. Don't assume that the listener knows anything about who you are, where you're from, how you were raised, where you went to school and mean what you say. Um, That's one of the other nuances of communication that we find really kind of challenging, but in an interesting and kind of good way sometimes is, is I will say something to my team and they really think that I mean something else. And I have to go. And what I love is they will often speak back to me. say, this is what I heard you say. Love and that. it's usually love the that. exact opposite of what I did say. And I have to say, no, no, no. I meant exactly what I said. We're going to do this. We're not doing 
what you inferred based on, you know, that kind of high context culture that they may be a part of. So that's just, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Um, it's a great opportunity for people to learn and kind of adjust how they communicate in their style a little bit so that they can, you know, again, create the most highly effective team that they can possibly create by being a part of um, a global a global group that really respects and wants to learn about other cultures. 100%. We work with a lot of Western fintechs that then come into Africa and either open up an entity or maybe they are building a solution for Africans. And it's very interesting when we're talking to them, even just like the candidate interview experience, like how you go about that, how you negotiate. Certain parts of Africa are very, very formal with how you talk to each other, how you respect each other. And that's just something you have to teach. And for some, you just think that's natural. Of course, that's how you speak to a certain person. But with different cultures, there's different ways to show respect. Um, mm-hmm. And it's definitely a learning curve there. Is there anything you guys do when it comes to onboarding to teach that? Or is it a more learn as you go? Well, I think this is sort of a new aspect that we, again, because we're starting to integrate uh, you know, so many different cultures into working teams, that has become sort of a necessity to onboarding. And that is, we put together a an initial presentation, uh, one of that team member that I mentioned brought us the, the book, The Culture Map. And yeah. so we have sort of a, a PowerPoint uh, little mini training class on, you know, here are the top three dimensions of culture that might trip you up if you're not aware of, of these differences. And then also, how do you adjust your behavior and how you communicate with different people on the team in order to to be as effective as you can be and also to to be as respectful of the different cultures as as you can as well. And I think integrating that into the early sort of the first few weeks of onboarding uh, has been very, very beneficial. And it's something that we're going to continue to drill down deeper into um, as we as we add more people to our organization and just continue to reinforce those learnings, those teachings, and more importantly, the new behaviors or the slightly modified behaviors that we all need to participate in in order to get the most out of our relationships at work. There's another layer on top of that is that you do tech hires, which is already challenging on its own. What have you found to be your biggest struggle when hiring for the tech department? Uh, Finding diverse candidates. Uh, That is, that has been the biggest challenge. It's, you know, and I think oftentimes organizations kind of settle into a little bit of a routine where they look for people that are like them and they do it unconsciously. Uh, It's that unconscious bias for people who are like me, who Mm -hmm. come from where I come from, who have the education I I have, uh, who have a similar culture to what I have. And in some areas where we hire, um, it's really difficult. You can't get a, you can't get cultural diversity in certain locations, of course, yeah. but we can get gender diversity or other aspects of diversity. And I think really putting a very intentional focus on digging deep and looking harder for women in technology, for example, has, has been a big focus of mine. And I, I make it very clear to my leadership team that I don't expect that everyone they hire is going to look just like them. I expect age diversity, uh, educational diversity, gender diversity, any type of diversity that we can achieve uh, makes us a more creative and more innovative uh, engineering company. So that's probably been one of the bigger challenges is, is the extra effort it takes 
to really find a more diverse slate of candidates when you're when you're interviewing for a particular role. Is that challenging when there's like panel interviews? I'm sure then everyone has different opinions on everyone. What does that look like? That has probably been one of the things um, that I've I've noticed recently that's that's really kind of challenging um, is I'll have two different people on a panel and I just sat on one last week and they had wildly different opinions about (laughs) this particular candidate. And unfortunately, I found myself in the tiebreaker role. Uh, so I, I, I sided with, with one and said, you know, I think this person has such a unique perspective and their work experience is pretty different from the way that we operate. And that would be good for us because, again, it brings in diversity of experience, diversity of approach. And um, so we're going to we're going to go ahead and advance with this particular candidate and see how how uh, they do in the technical interview. But I do think it's important to surround yourself with people who don't necessarily do things the way you do or think the way you do. And I think that makes us better as an organization. I interviewed somebody on the podcast last week and they were telling me they're a fintech and they were telling me they prefer not to hire people from fintechs. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I'm so confused. And they were explaining that they prefer to hire people from different industries, even banks. And I was like, okay, most of my clients prefer not to hire from banks as they're really corporate. And he said he loves to bring people in that have different perspectives, have different experiences, come in with a fresh set of eyes. It was a very, very interesting perspective. I totally agree. I totally agree. You you kind of get sort of stuck sometimes thinking that you need to hire people that are have worked in your industry yeah. or in my case have payments experience. Yeah. And while that is important, that shouldn't be an absolute criteria because you can take someone from retail that has a really strong you know, UI UX background in dealing mm. direct to consumer. And if our customers are not consumers necessarily, but maybe they're, you know, they're insurance carriers, that perspective still makes uh, us better because it helps us enrich the end user experience, be it a consumer, an adjuster, a vendor, or, or um, you know, or one of our employees of one, one of our carriers. So I do think I totally agree. So you want to have a little, you want to have the best of all, but yeah. I, th- I do agree. It's a great, it's a great opportunity to be able to hire a lot of diversity from industry as well. I just want to be a fly on the wall. into like an all hands meeting and everyone just having vastly different opinions coming to a conclusion. That is just another, that's, that's for another day. I would love to pick your brain about that. But <laughs> sure. something I'm, I'm curious about is you mentioned having a massive focus on women and hiring women. What have you done at One Inc. to ensure you have a good pipeline when interviewing? Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. So we have internal and external recruiters. 
that are always scouring uh, for talent. And I have asked that they make it a priority to ensure that they are looking for women engineers. We are also starting to uh, dip our toe into um, college campus recruiting. And we've picked out a number of universities in the areas where we have, um, you know, our offices, some out of the country, some in. And that also is a, is a focus is don't bring me five, you know, men that all have similar backgrounds. I yeah. want to have, you know, as much diversity as possible. Um, and, and I do ask that they really put a priority on finding uh, women candidates uh, for all of our different roles. And again, you have to recruit women a little differently. Um, women that are that are in currently in in a role with a company are usually not their their resumes not out there. They're not yeah. open uh, for for opportunities. They're and loyal. so you really have to you know kind of use your friend and family network, uh, use your you know your external networking contacts to say, you know, who do you know that would be good? And then you have to actively recruit them out of their current organization, um, which frankly is how I've been hired every time as uh, someone has reached out to me when I wasn't looking for a new a new role and said, would you be interested in talking to us about this? And, you know, the answer should always be yes, because, again, it's good practice. Um, but it often does lead to a really interesting, amazing opportunity to do something new. Love it. The last question I have for you is, while your product is maturing, how do you balance staying innovative? This one's tricky for a lot of businesses. You're wanting to see the direction your product's going in, but you want to stay on top of it. What advice do you have? Oh my gosh, this is this is probably one of the biggest challenges for a company that is maturing and growing. Um, once you have a set of products under your belt that you are doing ongoing maintenance, enhancements, you know, extending those products, um, you start to incur a much bigger part of your resource capacity is devoted to, to managing, maintaining, enhancing those products. And so then you have less capacity to focus on building something brand new, kind of going back to the, you know, two people in a garage kind of style of development. So I, I attended a, a course called the Innovative IT Leader Program. It was at Stanford University. And, and the visual that they gave us was a big company is like a big blue square. And the innovation team is like a small orange triangle. So companies employ different techniques in order to stay innovative. They might have the orange triangle sit outside of the big blue square and operate almost like a separate department. Um, that can be effective because it protects that innovation. But then it also creates a little bit of heartache because of all the people in the blue square don't get an opportunity to do innovative work. Yeah, I personally like the idea of the orange triangle being inside of the blue square. And the people that can work on innovation constantly can change. And I think that that is, that is sort of the best of both worlds is innovation is protected and cultivated, but everyone has an opportunity to participate. So we are, uh, we just kicked off a design sprint uh, a, a few weeks ago, and it was a very diverse cross-section of people that we brought together for one week. Um, and we led this design session and what came out of it was a working prototype for a new product idea. And I, I think the next time that we do that, 
we should invite an entirely different set of people so that we can give everyone an opportunity to participate in that kind of innovative, creative brainstorming. But at the end of the at the end of the week, we still have accomplished and produced a working prototype and that that we were able to socialize with some of our customers and get feedback. Um, I think if you can um, maintain kind of that rotational philosophy around innovation and also carve out a little bit of capacity in everyone's day for them to focus on whether it's applied research or looking at new technologies and how they might help our company or just doing, you know, small group sort of ad hoc projects to say, hey, we came up with this this idea we think might be a good new product feature and give them, you know, 10 or 20 percent of their time to focus on that. I think that's another really powerful way that you can maintain those creative juices within your engineering organization. Okay, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but how do we stray away from innovation for the sake of innovation? So for example, I'll take a very, very mature app. Instagram has just gone through a massive makeover to the point where they're completely losing engagement, where the amount of engagement has shrunk down to a third. And a lot of content creators aren't even putting stuff on the app anymore because they're so upset with the change of it. So how do you manage whether this innovation is needed? Is it innovation for the sake of innovation? Um, one of my favorite expressions is aim small, miss small. And for those of you um, who are Mel Gibson fans, you may recognize what movie that came from. <laughs> but I think that that's a good mantra for how you start to make changes to especially an existing platform is and 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 a lot of product people will call it test into the market. It's make a small change, float it out there, maybe do some a b testing or find a way that you can me measure engagement, which all of those tools, those analytical tools are available to give you immediate feedback on click-throughs and how much time people spend on a particular page or what have you. But I think aim small, miss small, or testing into the market is critical. And if you remember early in, in the podcast, I said, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind. Yeah. Like from a leadership perspective, you have to be open to realizing or recognizing that you may have gone in the wrong direction and you have to be able to have the courage to make a course correction. So if, if they're losing uh, you know, viewership and they have made changes to the platform that are not sitting well with people, they have to be ready and willing to revert back or to pivot in a different direction to try to get that momentum um, you know, swung back in their favor. But I think part of it, sometimes we get so committed to an idea. For example, no one is ever going to stop printing photographs. You know, yeah. we all want camera with film. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that kind of mentality has destroyed some industries and some companies because they, they were so committed to their idea that they didn't read the audience. They didn't see what was happening right in front of them. Um, you know, Blockbuster is another example. We have yeah, to be so Netflix careful that we don't get so committed to our idea that we, that we just completely miss the bus. Elizabeth, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. It was a delight to have you on. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you and um, good luck. 
Thanks so much. Where's the best place for listeners to reach you? LinkedIn is probably the most efficient way. I, I try to get out there and check it a couple of times a week. I like to keep a finger on the pulse of what's happening in my industry and with my uh, my LinkedIn peer group. So I think that's a good that's a good way to reach out. Fantastic. Thanks again. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, Connecting the Global Fintech Community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new, exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.